Turn in your Bible this morning, if you would, to the book of John. Been there a number of times the last few weeks, and a few of the moments that I will be up here, I'm given the opportunity over the next few weeks, we'll probably be back in the book of John. And in fact, we'll probably be back in this chapter. It's not a chapter I don't believe we can uh, tack the whole thing in one day. And uh, you say... Thank goodness for that. And um, we're going to look here at the beginning of this chapter. Jared, would you do me a favor? Would you mind filling this up with water and bringing it to me? Our family's been hanging out together, and uh, a few people have given each other a little bit of coughs and sniffles or allergies. Not sure which one, but we may need that in a little bit. So uh, he's one of my teenagers. I can boss him around a little bit. If you will look at John chapter number 9, and uh, we'll read down through, uh, read down through a bulk of this story. Unlike a lot of the stories in the Gospels, this um, story is long enough that it's, uh, it takes up the whole chapter, and uh, that's significant. In fact, it's significant because God gives us this story of this blind man, and really there's not a whole lot to the details of the story. Yet there's some conversations following the story that end up sort of carrying us through the entire rest of the chapter. So we're going to start with the story, and we'll get into a few of the conversations today, and then in the weeks to come, we'll attempt uh, to look at the rest of it. But if you would... Uh, You can remain seated because of the length of time here today uh, in this passage. But if you would, look at verse number 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation means the word sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. And the neighbors, therefore, and they which, had, uh, they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is this not he that sat and begged? And some said, This is he. And others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. So they said, He looks like him, but we're not sure. And this man confirms, I am the one that was blind. And yes, now I do see. And look at verse 10. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? And he said, I know not. And they brought to, and they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And so now we get the Pharisees involved. So he's speaking to his neighbors, and now he's speaking to the Pharisees. 
And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. That's a detail that we need to know. Why? Because of their reaction. Look at verse 15. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, he put clay. We're going to talk about that in a moment. That's significant. Upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. And now watch their reaction. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So the Pharisees, their reaction to this is, how did you get your sight? Well, Jesus gave me my sight. How did he give it to you? Well, he used clay. He put it on my eyes and they realized it was on the Sabbath. They say, oh, they ignore the miracle and address how he did the miracle. Say, yeah, he can't be of God because of this Sabbath law that we have. Then, it's, then notice, and look down for time's sake in verse number uh, 19 and 20. So they bring his parents in verse 18, and they ask them, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? And so they're almost this critical aspect, like kind of critical in how they ask, how then does he see? Was he really blind? In our society today, we may think of the same thing. Uh, they're saying, has he been begging all these years on the side of the road, and we've been giving to him? And he could see like the whole time. And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him and he shall speak for himself. And these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. Now the Jews are involved. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, meaning if anyone said of Jesus, he's the Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. And when you were put out of the synagogue, you were in all essence put out of society. If you had a meat shop, they would not buy your meat. If you had a rug shop, they would no longer buy your rug. If you were not part of the synagogue, you were not part of society. And so his parents fearfully say, we don't, we're not sure how he got his sight because they knew the persecution that would come if they said that Jesus was the Messiah. And then, so the Jews come and they ask this man, um, you know, where, where did you get your sight? Look down at verse 24. <laughs> so they call, him, they call this man again. And the man was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise, because we know that this man is a sinner. Praise God for your sight. Don't attribute it to Jesus. And then this is the man's response to them. Then said they unto him again, What did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? And then I like this question. Will ye also be his disciples? So now they're really mad. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And then this man gives a scholarly but simple answer. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is this a marvelous thing, that ye not know not from whence he is? And yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. And since the world began, it was not, uh, would not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. And look at verse 33. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. So he goes on and he says, I, doesn't, I don't know all the ins and outs. And I don't know exactly how he did all this. But he said, I know I was blind. And I know that now I see. We're going to talk a little bit about that 
this morning. We'll finish out the chapter in just a few moments. Lord, give us grace and mercy as we take this few moments and we study your word. We try to apply it to our hearts so that we can have wisdom in this world. We pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. There's a number of ways to look at this story. As you saw, as we read, there's a reason I want to read the bulk of it today, and we'll be walking through it in the coming weeks. There's a lot of different ways that you can look at this story, many different layers to it. It plays a very significant part in the book of John as a whole and in its context, and there's a lot of different ways we can look at it. There's seven specific signs in the gospel or the book of John, meaning seven particular miracles that point to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was from God. And this is one of those. It's actually the sixth one. Uh, There's seven I am statements, and Jesus has just made one of those in the chapter before. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus makes one of those I am statements, and it says that they picked up stones to kill him. So we know this is a big moment in Jesus' ministry and that there's a lot of crucial things going on and Jesus picks this time to work in this way, to kind of try to, in a way, separate those who believed and those who didn't. All these different, these seven miracles and uh, the, the, the next one's about to be the uh, raising of Lazarus there. We'll find that in chapter 11 as we walk through, but we could look at this unit, this chapter as a unit itself. Uh, You have this miracle, and then Jesus disappears for a time, and then he bookends, and he comes back at the end of the chapter. So you have miracle and conversation with Jesus, and then you have this gap in the middle, and then Jesus comes back and has a conversation. And in the middle, you actually have four different discussions. Verses 8 through 12, as we read, the neighbors speak to the man that was born blind. Verses 13 through 17, you have a conversation between the Pharisees and the man. Then the next paragraph, 18 through 23, the Jews speak with his parents. And then in verse 24 through 34, the Jews speak to the man himself. Then Jesus comes back to speak to the man and he addresses these different things. So you have all these conversations and people trying to figure out what is going on with this man's life. And we can look at this incident through the lens of different themes. There's faith, there's miracles, there's questions, there's unbelief, there's this power of a changed life. But I want to focus this morning on one particular little word or set of words, and you'll find it in verse number three in just a moment. But I want to focus on one particular thing, and I want you to think about the context. Jesus passes by and he sees a blind man, man that was blind, it says, from his birth. And when the disciples address him, they also mention that he's blind from his birth. So they know how long he's been blind. They know as a baby and as an infant and as a child, he was born blind. That is a bad, in our minds, thing. It's a tough thing. It's a hard thing. The innocence of a little child, and you imagine them trying to, this man trying to grow up and trying to function, trying to do things, figure things out, and how can he balance hearing without seeing it? And it's, it's just a difficult thing to even comprehend. And there's a bad thing, if you want to think about it that way, that has happened to this man, even from birth. And there's a question that is asked. And it's a natural question that we ask even in our minds and in our society today. It just ha- so happens that the disciples asked this question when they saw this man. So they see this man with a bad thing, blindness from birth. So they see this man blind, and their natural question is this in verse number two. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We're going to look at Jesus' answer in a moment, but their question is a significant question. 
They say this bad thing that happened, did it happen because this man was a sinner? The Jewish culture even believed that you could sin within the womb. And so they're saying, is this a result of this man's sin or God knowing that this man was going to be sinful so he doesn't have sight? Or was it because maybe more likely his parents were sinners or they were involved with some sort of sin or something along the way and because of that their child is born without sight? And what's the reason for this? And if you want to dumb the question down even more, and it's a question that we often ask, in essence, they turn to Jesus and say, why was this man born blind? Why did a bad thing happen to this man. And it's a natural thought. Perhaps even as Christians, we get into this morally mechanical universe. And it is that we think that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And heaven is a place where people go and get the rewards of their good things for believing in God on this earth. And hell is a place where people go and they're punished for the bad things that they deserve. And that's how many of us view life. Kind of like a sports contract. If you're a really good player and you provide value, we'll give you a big contract. If you are a lesser player, we'll give you a lesser contract. If you don't play well, then we'll fire you. It's the sort of the result of those things. Or if you're thinking about uh, the last few weeks, you're a great player, you get a big contract, and then you go nuts and blow it all, you know, and throw it all away. You know, it's just a, this cause and reaction that we kind of think. You produce good, you get good. You produce bad, then you get bad. And Jesus is saying this man's pain, this man's bad thing that happened in his life is not necessarily like that. It's not like a GPA. You get a great grade, then you get a good scholarship. He says life doesn't function in that way. And this is how sometimes we think that life operates on every plane. Remember when Job's so-called friends uh, came to talk to him in Job chapter 4 and verse number 7. They said, remember, who, who was ever innocent that was punished? And when were the upright cut off? And so when they come to Job, who's just suffered the loss of children, the loss of land, the loss of pro, uh, the products that he owned, the loss of loved ones, the loss of health, they're sitting with him and said, all right, Job, we feel for you. But when did God ever punish someone innocent? And then they go on and they say, if you repent, then God may let you off of some of these things. Job goes on, of course, and God eventually comes in and corrects them for their mindset of that. He says, repent of your sins. Righteous people aren't persecuted. Surely you've done something wrong for the reason for this bad thing to happen. And so the disciples ask a common question. Why was this man suffering? Why did this man have bad things that happened in his life? Was it because of sin? Was it because of him? What, what was it? And Jesus corrects this errant thinking, and he does it quickly. We understand that there's things, and there, there are cause and effect in this world. And there is sin, and there is the reaping of sin, and there is righteousness and the reaping of righteousness. And we think sometimes that all of life falls into those things. Bad things, and bad people. Jesus gives us something very unique. And, and yes, of course, we can remember Adam and Eve sinned. They were thrown out of the garden. Miriam's revolt. Uh, she was struck with leprosy. Korah rebelled and was swallowed by the earth. Nabab and Abihu, they started an unauthorized fire and were struck dead. Uzzah put his hand on the ark and was killed. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that some people that were among them were sick and had even died because 
They were taking part of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, I'm going to put some of you into sickness until <coughs> you repent. <coughs> so yes, the Bible has plenty to say about reaping what we sow. But Jesus here reminds us that the link between personal sin and personal suffering is not always absolute. Today as a church, there's some suffering. Today maybe in your life, you're going through some individual suffering. And maybe in your life, you're going through pain. It could be a health situation. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a job situation. It could be financial. There's many, many ways that we suffer on this earth. Jesus gets to the root of some things in our lives and says it's not always about the question why, but there's a deeper meaning to it. There's a deeper thing that it can be used for. And regardless of whether something that we get in our lives that's painful is the result of sin or whether it's the result of God working, there's a deeper meaning to it. And we would fail if we weaken the gospel by just always pointing to this straightforward thing. In our society today, we always say that there's a physical answer. In their day, in Israel's day, they would have always gone to, there's a spiritual reason for everything. And in our mindset in a day, we always say there's a physical reason for everything. But God gives us an answer, and it's an encouraging answer. It's one in which we're going to look at as we walk through this passage this morning. Jesus says, though there's sometimes a connection between sin and suffering, there's always a cosmic sin uh, connection. We have fallen. We are in sin. And because of that, we suffer. But there's something more. Look, if you would, again, at chapter number 9. Look down at verse number 3. You're going to find a particular reason for this. Some people may be more prone to say, well, why, is, why was he blind? There was no reason. God created him that way and just kind of left him alone. That's not really the reason either. So what was it? Look at verse number 3. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that. Okay, he's going to give us the answer. It's one little word. The word but in Greek is Allah, and then uh, the word that is henna. And he's, always, he's saying this, it's a definite pivot point. And he says, you think it's this way, but it's actually this way. You think this man's suffering because of a result of some thing or some sin or some just open-ended, no-reason thing. But I'm telling you that there is something for sure in this man's life. And what is it? But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Why was this man born blind? Why was this man, in a way, suffering? There's not much he could have done other than beg for all of his adult life. Why would God put a man through something like that? Why would God let this man suffer in this way? Why was this man going through pain the way that he was going through pain? Why was that? And Jesus says, suffering in this man's life was for this reason. The works of God would be glorified in him. God, would, people would recognize that God has a plan. Though we may think our suffering is connected to sin, or though we may think our suffering is connected to some physical reason, or we may think our suffering and our pain has, is just at random because the world is a terrible place, but God says your suffering and your pain is part of my plan. 
Not simply that God responds to your pain. It does not say that this man was blind and so God decided that he would come have mercy. It doesn't say God found out that this man was blind and so he healed him. It doesn't say that Jesus was shocked to see a blind man on the side of the road and so he helped him. It doesn't say those things. It says this man was blind from his birth because there was coming a time that it would be used in God's plan. This was his plan. You think back to when Jacob dies in Genesis chapter number 50, particularly in verse number 20, and Jacob dies. Joseph, at this point, has saved all of his brothers. He saved his family. He saved his father. He really has saved what would be the nation of Israel. And Jacob dies, and his brothers get worried. His brother's like, oh man, dad's out of the way. Now Joseph can kind of do whatever he wants to to us. We betrayed him. We threw him in a pit. We acted like he was dead. We robbed him of the years that he was going to have with his family. We, we put him into punishment. He was in prison because of this. I'm sure at this point they knew the story. He's lied about by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten there for years. Then he's raised up in this way. And what was Joseph's response when Jacob dies and his brothers are fearful? He says, hey, you meant this for evil, but God used this for good. Does it say that? It doesn't. It says you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Notice the difference. It doesn't say you meant this for evil and God morphed it into something good. You meant this for bad and pain and suffering, but God took it, sanded it down, and changed it into something great. It says you meant this for evil, but in God's plan, His meaning for it, what does that mean? It means it was part of God's plan. And Joseph realized, and that's why he tells his brothers, and the testimony that he must have had with them was great because he says, you hating me is part of God's plan. You throwing me in a pit, and in those moments, maybe thinking about killing me, it was part of God's plan. Maybe you selling me into slavery, part of God's plan. Being sold into Potiphar's house and having success, that was part of God's plan. Potiphar's wife lying about me and though I was righteous and trying to follow my God, being mistreated and treated as a sinner and thrown into prison and cast down, that was part of God's plan. Me being forgotten and left in a prison until the time that I was needed, all of that was not random, he says. It wasn't random. It didn't just happen to me. God worked it, and it's part of his plan. Sometimes, you know, it's as easy as Joseph looks back to be like, oh, I see that this is part of God's plan. But in that moment, can you imagine, when he's sitting in prison, taken away from his family, trying to reconcile that the God that he has been told is good and great and merciful and wonderful, that he's got to try to somehow believe that that God is in control of all this. That that God is the one that sent him there. That that God is the one that's working through this forgetting him in prison and all of this pain. That God, this is his plan. So how sometimes is it do we, that we try to reconcile in our mind? Bad things, bad people is easy. Bad things, good people is hard. And so Jesus is trying to answer that question for us this morning. He's trying to answer it in the lives of these disciples, and particularly even in this man. This man didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't even know where he had gone. He just knew of his name somehow. But God all along had a purpose that at that moment, 
that he would suffer for all of those years. You'd think, man, that man would be like, could you have met me when I was like 10? <laughs> so I could maybe have grown up a little bit different, gotten a different job, trained a little different way, married somebody, not had to beg for all these years. I'm not exactly sure how old the man was. He could have been 20. He could have been 60. Or not, not, no, nothing given there, but he had lived his whole life with this suffering. But now he realizes, and he's going to make it clear in a moment, this is part of God's plan. And all of that suffering and all of that pain was going to be, pain was going to be used by God in order that God's purpose and His will and His might and His works would be displayed in this man who once was blind, but now can see. It's a miracle, it's a sign that points to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus as Lord says that Jesus worked this clay and he, he put it into the man's eyes and he said he sent him to the pool called Siloam, which has a significant name. It means sent. And like literally Jesus sent this man to this pool. By faith he had to go. He wasn't healed with the mud. He was healed by his act of faith. That's what Jesus used. That's the avenue he used, this cleansing at this pool. So it's not that he put the mud on his eyes and all of a sudden he could see like in other places in Scripture. It's that he put the mud on his eyes and then gave him a task and said, show obedience there's something significant about the mud, and that's why the Pharisees get so particularly upset when they find out how Jesus healed him. He said, how did Jesus heal you? Well, it was the Sabbath day, and he got down, and he took his spit, his spittle, and he kind of rubbed it into this kind of like a mud pie if you grew up in an area that you uh, know what that is. You know, he makes this, my, Ellie makes mud pies all the time, and uh, she goes in and she'll get a pan out of the bottom of the kitchen near the oven and she'll take it outside and she'll make a mud pie in that pan and so then when I go to make you know some dinner thing in it there's mud pie residue left in there and that that's exactly what Jesus is making okay there was nothing special he didn't gather it from special clay okay he didn't walk to the outside of the town where there was a circle drawn and this is where you get the blindness healing clay okay there was none of that he just grabbed normal clay to show that he can use anything to show that anything can be part of his plan. He spits into it so that there's a way, in our way our minds are like, wow, this is weird. <laughs> but God can do anything in any situation. And then he makes this clay, but that's significant because on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees had a law. And in that law, randomly side by side, you could not knead dough, okay, like make dough. That's why you did it day before. And you could not work clay. So Jesus says to these disciples, I'm not just going to put my hand on this guy and heal him. I'm not just going to send him to this pool to wash. I am going to go against everything you think in this world. I'm going to take this clay. I'm going to break your laws. And I'm going to use it to change this man's life. Why would Jesus do that? Because he says, I don't think the way you think. He's proving to these people, I don't act the way you want me to act. I don't do things the way you want me to do them. My plan is not the same as your plan. I don't think the same way that you think. I don't act the same way that you act. I don't have the same feelings that you feel. Jesus says, I am not like you. And that is a good thing. He wasn't being mean or just trying to separate himself. That's a good thing. He's saying, I'm not like you because I am God come to save you. And so these Pharisees get so angry that Jesus would work this clay and use that as part of his miracle. But what Jesus is actually saying is, I don't work the way that you work. 
And you're not going to understand why I do things the way that I do. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. And in reality, it's what he's telling us this morning and this week. Jesus is saying, you have pain, you have suffering, you have things in your life. It could be losing a pastor, it could be losing a father, it could be losing someone that you love. Or you may have faced other problems this week. It could be a need that you didn't understand how, how we're going to meet this need. It could be a feeling, it could be a doubt, it could be a relationship. And Jesus' message to you this morning is that it is not random. That there is a purpose. There is a reason to this world. The way that things work. Wouldn't it be bad to enter into this week and just think that this is all just random? That it just happened. It can be physically explained. It can be told away. But God has a reason for it. And in each thing in our lives, Jesus doesn't say, neither this man sinned nor his parents, and so I'll work the works of God in his life. He says, this happened so that I can work the works of God in his life. And this week, God's message to us as a church is that you have lost your pastor physically so that God can work the works of God in your life. Some of you have lost a friend so that God can work the works of God in your life. We've lost a family member so that, but that God can work the works of God in your life. You've suffered this week. You've had pain. You've been sick. You've gotten bad news this week. We have people in our church this week that have received bad news, bad diagnosis, not a comfortable diagnosis and something that's going to bring pain. It's going to bring suffering. But that God could work the works of God in your life. And I don't know exactly how those things happen. For this man, there's a lot of ways initially in this passage. Just think of the conversations he had. First, you th think about, well, how did God work the works of God in this man's life? How were the works of God seen by what he did? Well, Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam, and there's obedience. So in how he lived, God started working the works of God in his life. Then he has these conversations, and he speaks to neighbors, those that knew him and known him all his life. He speaks to Pharisees, those that were going to judge and be an authority. He speaks to Jews, the society or the culture that was around him. And he starts speaking to all these people. And what does he speak? Just truth. I was blind. Jesus came. Now I see. So in his life and his obedience, he works the works of God. In his speech through this hardship now, he works the work of God. And then you're going to see in a moment at the end of the chapter, by his faith. He's going to have faith in Christ in a moment. And he works the works of God in all of these things. And God is glorified through this man's pain and this man's suffering. Not his random, just sort of unhappy, just ah, this bad luck in my life. But God's plan was to glorify himself. This week, have our lives, though we are in pain, glorify God. Have our lives, though we suffer, glorify God. In pain this week, in suffering, whether it's this circumstance or one that you're going through elsewhere, has it drawn you closer to God because that's His intent? Or have you let it push you away from Him? 
while you try to figure it out on your own. Say, God, I don't understand, but I need to be with you. I need to be closer to you. I need to know you. Joseph went through all of those different things so that he could point his brothers and then others and eventually what would be the nation of Israel to God that was in control and sovereign. David did it. Moses did it. Abraham did it. Job did it. That suffered in their lives, yet still pointed to Christ through pain and suffering. And how many people have we talked to? We, hopefully we've lived in obedience this week, but how many people have you talked to this week? I've had people, we were the other day, uh, my uncle and I, we went into Walgreens to get these pictures that we had had printed for the viewing and some different things. And um, I tell my name and I need to pick up pictures for Sumter and uh, okay. And then I hear this voice behind me. I can't, I told this story to a couple people. I don't know if I've told you. I'll tell you again. I heard this voice behind me said, can I see those? I turned around as a lady that was there and she had big tears in her eyes. I didn't know who she was. And I just asked her, I said, uh, did you, I showed her the picture. I said, did you know him? She said yes, and she explained how and what the connection was and different things. And we just sat for a few minutes and stood for a few minutes and talked about some different things. And a conversation I had no clue that I was going to have, that God gave us the opportunity to have. She's now a Jehovah's Witness and uh, has chosen kind of a different faith and, di- and different idea. But we were able to have a real, true gospel conversation because of this incident. And that we rely on Christ and Christ alone and by faith and faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ. And God gave that opportunity to speak in a certain way that I would not have had had there not been pain. And I don't know what's going to come from that lady's life. I hope that if she's saved, she returns to true faith and grace alone. I hope that if she's not saved, she turns to Christ and Christ alone. But who, who have you spoken to this week and how have you spoken to them? Do you believe that God has a purpose in your pain? It might be to heal you, and He can do that, just like He did with this man's life. But not all of us get the miracle. Not all of us get the physical miracle. But there's a greater miracle, isn't there? There's a greater miracle in that a sinful person can suffer and go through pain and yet point to Christ. That is a miracle. There's a greater miracle in that there is faith and that we can believe and that we can trust and we can trust in Christ. That is a miracle. The miracle is that we are saved by grace alone. Job knew that suffering stinks. Job never said, I enjoy this. This is great. This is fun. It's exciting. He never says any of those things. His physical pain was hard on him. Losing his family was difficult on him. But you know what Job never did? He never took God out of the equation. Did you notice that? Job says, though this slay me, yet I'll trust him. He doesn't do that. Though I die randomly, I'll still trust him. He doesn't say that. He says, though he slay me, if God takes my life, I will still trust him. Job never thought for a moment about removing God from his pain. He never said, if God comes in and swoops in and saves me from all of Satan's work, he says, if in God's plan, this is what he has, then I'll trust him. But I'm not going to remove him from that. So I don't know what you're going through this morning. 
This is just sort of on my heart because it's what I've been going through this week. And I've asked God to help me through these moments of life not to remove him from my pain and not to blame my suffering on just sin or just Satan or just something random. But that is part of God's plan. I can't take God away from it. The Heidelberg Catechism, he asks a question. It says, what do you understand about the providence or the control of the sovereignty of God? And it gives a good quote. We'll finish here. It says, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power by which He upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules over them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, health and sickness, food and drink, prosperity and poverty, life and death, all things, in fact, come not to us by chance, but by His fatherly hand. This morning, church, our pain is not random. And our suffering is not meaningless. Your trial is not without God's purpose in life. God is making all things new. Christ is going to change all things. Nothing is wasted and there's no accidents in His universe. Anything and everyone can be an instrument for God's glory. Even spit and mud and a blind man. So this morning, what is the henna in your life? What is the but that? I'm going through this, not randomly, but that God will work. Wouldn't it be a great testimony if months from now and years from now, as a church, we look back and say there was a moment that hurt But that, God led us, taught us to rely on Him, and we trust Him in a different way today. And though there's things that feel like they'll never be exactly fixed physically on this earth, we can let the Master touch our eyes so that we can see what He sees, so that we can do what He asks, and let us trust Him finish with this verse. At the very end of the chapter, Jesus comes back. Jesus heard that, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and he said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? So he says, Who is the Son of God? And Jesus says, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he says, I am. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so this morning, we'll ask God to touch our eyes so that we can see, so that we can worship.